1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Valencia. How do we approach solving problems in a world where nothing works? How do we formulate approaches to the world's most intractable problems, like climate change or inequality, when the rules they are governed by are rigged by a series of ever-mutating, political and capitalist superbugs. Can we do better than to kick the can of problems down the road while we measure the extent of our failures? Kella Easterling, the author of Medium Design, knowing how to work on the world, suggests a turn away from the search for singular solution. She offers a perspective that considers not only separate objects, ideas, and events, but also the spaces between them. Medium Design doesn't look for new technical solutions, but writer explores the sophisticated relationships between emergence and incumbent technologies. It does not try to eliminate problems, but puts them together in productive combinations. And it offers forms of activism for modulating power and temperament in organizations of all kinds. Kella Easterling is a designer, writer, and a professor of architecture at Yale. And I'm very happy that she joins me now to discuss her work. Welcome to the show, Kella.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, it's my pleasure, Keller. I've wanted to talk to you for quite a while. You have um, made some waves in, in bits of the art world, even though I understand you come from fields of architecture and theatre. I, I think I have probably found myself quoting one of your ideas in the text I wrote, and I stole the quotations, I have to admit, from one of my earlier guests, Tom Hollett. So it would be fantastic to ask you to introduce yourself to our audience and maybe explain how you managed to bring practices of design, architecture, and theatre, and and many others into your work.
0: Well, I'm I'm Keller Easterling. I'm a writer and a professor, um, architect. I teach at Yale, and I write books, but I'm also a designer. What I've always said is that I felt the real training that I had was a training in theatre, and that, in a funny way, I've been transposing what I learned in theatre to architecture, mm. um, meaning that in theater, one has a currency in actions. You play mm. actions, you don't play nouns. Um, you speak in infinitive expressions frequently. You're using an action or an intention as the carrier of information. The text is most unreliable. It's uh, mm. It's not necessarily what's conveying the real intent or what's really going on, um, it's a hint to that. So I suppose in architecture, I've been looking not just at, uh, buildings with shapes and outlines, but a set of processes, um, and rules and relationships in which those buildings are situated, um, and looking at the way in which actions, affordances, organizations, relationships, create spatial consequences.
1: That's, that's already very interesting. The theatre and, and the built environment connection is something that seems to drive most of your interest in, in this book and I think in your earlier book, Extra Statecraft. I guess to get into the book, we, we might want to interrogate some of the terms that are on the cover. We're talking about medium design and, and how to work in the world. And like, like many designers, you start by thinking about a range of problems that design the kind of design that you would like to practice and produce a manifesto for would like to address. So maybe I can ask you about the kind of the kind of problems that you want to look at and what it is that the medium and design mean in this context.
0: Well, medium in this case is going like like many uh, uh, media theorists now thinking of that word not as just uh, bound. To associations with communication technologies or something mm. like that. But, but going back to the root medius meaning middle or milieu. So thinking about the, the matrix between things and, you know, many media theorists also looking at kind of elemental media, the way, the way that that word, you, you know, was used to describe air, water, earth, fire, the, mm. you know, the kind of, um, growth medium. Um, yeah. and, uh, so that's the way I'm using the word, and I'm using the word in wh- in some ways to link arms with those media theorists and thinkers mm-hmm. and others in different disciplines who are doing the same thing, you know, moving away from just the description or taxonomizing of the object to think about the the milieu, or the matrix, um, whether it's oncologists who are. You know, not just looking at the tumor, but looking at chemical fluctuations in the surrounding yeah. tissue. You know, they're, they're, it, so it's, it's a, and there is um, in, in many disciplines that kind of shift away to matrix. So I'm joining that conversation in an interdisciplinary conversation that's putting forward a spatial matrix as a kind of big mixing chamber for mm-hmm. all of our disciplines to think together about spatial variables, spatial contexts, and trying also to to put those spatial contexts to give them more uh, authority uh, to create more cultural fluency in spatial contexts. I think I need to know about econometrics and science and so on, but I I think that a broader culture could enjoy a, a broader fluency with spatial variables.
1: Well, this is music to my ears I mean my my big thing in my research, which um, our listeners will have heard me go on about quite a few times, is from a perspective of political art practices, the abilities for artists and practitioners to access knowledges that pertain to other disciplines and do with them things that they might might please that they might desire and I think we'll get to this this very soon because there's a there's a lot of focus without necessarily you using this terms. there's a lot of pressure on interdisciplinarity happening in, in your book. And I'd like us to, to find ways to undo some of this. But maybe, maybe as a way to escalate, I see that in this, this beautiful manifesto that you produce for, for designers and creators and people who's, who might want to change the world, work within it, as you say, you you seem to escalate from describing a certain epistemic problem, then you go into ways of solving particular practical solutions, and then you move on to politics. And these things kind of end up being meshed together, and never at any point do you ever look at a single discipline through a single lens. I don't want to force you to go through things chapter by chapter but the first thing that really drew me to you was the epistemic interest that you look at the difference between knowing how and knowing what um tacit knowledges affordances and so on and the way in which those can be expanded and and multiplied as ways of thinking through particularly your your spatial interest and
0: well this um looking at the middle, looking at the space between things, inverting the usual focus on figure and ground or object and matrix. I am musing in this book whether making that inverted shift also might change one's habit of mind about looking at a number of intractable problems or or contexts. Is it, is it just a good kind of mental exercise to, to, mm. to do this? And what do you see when you shift that focus, when you invert it? So that inverted habit of mind, you know, comes with some different assumptions, some inverted mm-hmm. assumptions. And, uh, you know, kind of going back to the, you just mentioned uh, the difference between knowing how and knowing that in this kind of, Way of looking at the world with half closed eyes, Mm -hmm. looking at the in between parts. It's it's um it comes not with knowing that, like knowing the right answer. Um, it's more like knowing how. It's knowing how things unfold in a context over time. And I'm borrowing knowing that and knowing how from Gilbert Ryle. No, it's the difference between knowing that, like knowing the right answer, and knowing Mm -hmm. how, like. Knowing what to do next, um, in in a in a context, knowing something about that, so I've often been nervous about the subtitle of this book knowing how to work on the world because it sounds too confident is not meant to sound <laughs> like oh i know the answer and it's it's absolutely not a manifesto it i appreciate why you say that but um <laughs> it's it's not a it's not a kind of oh i know what to do let us all do this
1: well, it's i was a, hoping it's, that someone could offer us a solution
0: <laughs> <laughs> but it is a, it's a contemplation on a uh, it's slightly different approach to knowing um Mm -hmm. what what it is you know i I have often said it's a little bit like playing pool where you can't know the right answer to playing pool you know there you can only respond to the next arrangement that sits before you you can't know the right answer to being funny you have to see Mm -hmm. you can only know how to be funny you can only know how to play pool because you're responding to something,
1: but first, serious questions already comes here. You used the pool example a couple of times in the book, and I, I trained as a physicist, so I think I share with you from some of some of your training a, a desire and a liking for determined sub- solutions. And when you say we can't predict a game of pool, of course, half of me wants to say, but but of course you can, until you quite clearly understand the role of your opponent there. And maybe maybe this is this is a place in which we need to look at an example of a problem that you we might want to solve using this kind of detached look at the middle at the middle
0: I, I tried to give a number of examples and i I always feel that the examples one it gives it always feels insufficient you feel that you want to keep going on with examples but yeah. The examples that I try to give in the book are sufficient to exercise a little bit of this imagination. I'll say that they're Mm. not meant to say, "Oh, this is this is you know, uh, this example is is an actual thing we should do or something like that." But uh, an easy example is um, looking at, for instance, um, automated vehicles, um, Mm. driverless cars, uh, and Mm. our kind of modern. Uh, enlightenment mind would say this is a new technology new technologies kill old technologies so that one's obsolete and now we must advance to the mm. new technology and so on but um it's also really clear that it, in this way of thinking uh that one isn't looking for solutions um one isn't mm. looking for the new that it's really m- more like an interplay of problems and an interplay of technologies that that is sophisticated. So it's not the new technology, it's the interplay between incumbent and uh, an emergent technology. So it, there's one point in the book where I talk about the orchestration of low capacity automated vehicles and high capacity transit, because if everybody, used an automated vehicle like the family Mm. car the the roads would be absolutely congested Um, so Mm -hmm. if it was used in lieu of transit you would have a very smart car and a very dumb traffic jam so it's a matter of thinking what is the what is the a sophisticated relationship between technologies not the new technology but the emergent and the incumbent how how should they work together and and there's just kind of simple example about, about how you would switch between those two capacities of, of movement.
1: I think this is an interesting example because it lets us look at a, another dimension of complexity that you, you touch on in the book when you uh, discuss some of the historical contingencies. So I happen to know, for instance, that when Britain was making its decisions about its mass transport in the 60s and the 70s, one of the factors that swayed us towards private car ownership was that one of the transport ministers had a stake in a business that sold and produced tarmac. And of course, this is the kind of corruption that we have to calculate into absolutely every decision, into absolutely every design to a problem. And I think what's interesting for me here is your attention to the fact that certain solutions that we might be drawn to follow are not always what they appear to be.
0: Well, let's go to another sort of example to maybe look at the way in which this way of thinking is the way we think all the time, every day, even though it might not be expressed. Or go to James C. Scott's really nice example where he talks about Mark Twain on the Mississippi Mm -hmm. River. um, It would be very impractical for Mark Twain to say, oh, I know the shape of the Mississippi River because the the shape of the Mississippi River changes. Um, and mm. it's, a, it's a better example than billiards, you know, uh, because billiards still has this kind of enlightenment <laughs> mind. I mean, better to talk about spores or the Mississippi River. As But <laughs> one's approach to it is indeterminate in order to be practical. Um, and I can't tell you how many mm. times we in an editing situation. Someone has changed that back thinking I meant determinate to be practical. But I'm saying indeterminate oh. to be practical. Yeah. It, You you have to have a sense of how the potentials of an organization are changing in order to respond to them. And and I would argue that we do this all day long. We manage things in our fridge. We we um, manage our children's uh, temperaments. Um, We manage all kinds of things in our environment. We know their potentials. It's not a solution it's it's about a reading of potentials
1: and what might be the the blocks what 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 stops that kind of thinking from from taking center stage do you think
0: well i think it is i think it is a sort of solutionist mentality sense that you must have the the quantifiable uh, proof of Mm. a direction forward rather than something more like a protocol i mean even now it's very clear that our survival relies on a pretty complicated COVID protocol that goes from Hmm. microns to territories. It involves a lot of different things, behaviors, hygiene, trailing vapors, big old six foot distances, and then microns and coverings. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, but it's a, it's a, it's a mixed protocol. I think those sorts of mixed protocols uh, in space are what the book is trying to kind of make a little bit more visible as as opportunities for us to actually begin to grapple with some of the uh, some of the complexity out there in in strangely very practical and simple ways.
1: Um, <laughs> well, I certainly look forward to the academic text that tries to analyze the world's responses to COVID through some kind of a positive lens and with compassion and understanding for the sheer complexity of, of the task that we have all collectively undertaken over the last couple of years. But I want to move maybe to a slightly different instantiation of, of yet another set of complexities that you touch on and the kind of circles that I think you and I move, you know, in art, design, there's been a lot of hope and enthusiasm for all sorts of decentralized solution, solutions. Um, the blockchain is almost a fetish. And you bring up a couple of um, land management examples and community management examples in your text. And one of those was the work of a charity operating in Asia that using a system of tokens was trying to distribute goods and social benefits in a way that was contingent on citizens' participation in the creation of social goods. So someone caring for their early neighbours would possibly earn an incorruptible and non-fungible token, which they could later exchange for, for example, vaccination or maybe street improvements. So this is just one example of something that we you know we would be scared of if we saw it in the news item about China but we could possibly contemplate it as a reasonably interesting solution to the kind of system of social relationship that has been controverted and maybe broken up by by some of the kind of broader strokes of capitalism and when I was trying to look this up I'm kind of interested in seeing you know the positive the positive face of the blockchain or rather the token system and the social credit system i was maybe a little bit horrified to find out that the credit reference agency experian that holds data on most of the the world's citizens and determines our ability to get credit cards loans and sometimes even apply for jobs and accommodation that experian was one of the indirect sponsors of the this particular enterprise so i don't particularly want to put that at your feet because it's not like you're responsible for the lot of all your case studies, but I'm yet again drawn to think about the relationship between experimental modes of problem solving and capital's sheer ability to absorb anything and everything to its own benefit.
0: Yeah, again, none of these examples are sort of uh, pure or something like yeah. that. I, I, and I'm not so sure that I should have used that example. I don't know um but but i i'll tell you why i was using it i wanted to paint a picture that what w- what we might be doing now is not eliminating problems like and mm. finding solutions that's not productive what i liked about this very small scale sort of social capital credit thing that that this uh, group is doing called asia initiatives is that they were taking problems and trading problems. So these were hmm. communities that had, no, that had less than nothing. They had debts. They had no cash. They had nothing but needs. Um, and it interested me as a way of, of talking about the potentials of problems to, to see in this case where problems in exchange become an asset. Um, so the... If you have a mm. you have a need you just you're trading your need um and so it was very graphic in that way I could trade my need yeah. for uh somebody to care for my uh, uh elderly father uh, that that credit could be exchanged but only for another need so it was a kind of a funny currency of needs um, mm. that we would typically think of as negative things deficits things on the other side of the of zero, but they were incredibly productive and, and useful. And that, that's, so that, that example came in the context of, uh, a discussion about how the problem is not the problems. It's <laughs> the segregation of the problems. Uh, oh, yeah. it, what one needs is the, in, the integration of problems and the potentials, the matchmaking between problems that is, uh, productive, um. And so that that's why that little example was was good, where it tries to go on. And other parts of the book is is talking about the kinds of, well, what uh, Gibson Graham would call community economies. The mm-hmm. kinds of exchanges that occur in communities that don't go through uh, through wages. Um, they are forms of sharing, forms of kinship, forms of mutualism and community that are in excess of any kind of capital exchange, you know, and in fact, they redouble uh, their worth, you know, it's, they're, they're, they're part of live organizations, which, I mean, capital is so stupid, it doesn't really. Get live organizations, you know, like in live organizations, <laughs> you you plant one tuber or one seed and you get mm. ten. You know, they they in capital um, terms they overproduce, um, uh, <laughs> and and not because you're eliminating problems, but because you're putting them together.
1: Well, I certainly agree with you that an experiment that ends in failure is still a worthwhile experiment. And one thing that you bring up in a book is the sort of utopian idea of a garden city, such as Surround London, where I am now, that being a prospect for eliminating the landlord class. So it's a system of land shareholding and land ownership arrangements that was in theory going to lead to home and land ownerships for the working classes. Of course, this failed, but I think we have a very interesting legacy here to dwell on. And you do go on to give a few more contemporary examples of maybe more successful um, initiatives that look at arranging our relationship with land and space, which is, I think, your, your home territory. So maybe we could think a little bit about those situations where even, even the stupid capital manages to turn a profit in a way that we can maybe explore for our own ends.
0: Well, it's one primary reason for foregrounding spatial variables and mm. heavy. What I'm called heavy information, um, the information that's embedded in relationships, in weather, in slosh maps, in you know fire, in um, <laughs> uh, all of the kind of affordances of, of physical objects and relationships. Because what I see is, you know, the automatic harm that capital can do through abstractions and the chance of making value, other sorts of values, you know, not commodified, decommodified mm-hmm. values in spatial arrangements. And I'm trying to foreground that, foreground that heavy information, that those heavy relationships be- precisely because it's so much easier to game the situation with a set of abstractions. I mean it's just so yeah. so clear uh, and I mean it, it's you know tragic that there is a sense that you know blockchain would be redemptive and uh, you know the book talks a little bit about that because that's going in in, in my view in the exact opposite direction from something mm. that would be productive because it's get, it's it's going right into it's it's creating yet more abstraction to be more easily yeah. gained and i'm trying to foreground the heavy sand in the machine the, the relationships we we can make even with the things with capital's failures in fact it's ideal when capital does fail then things fall off the abstract ledger, they stop being trafficked to mortgage products or whatever, they Mm. turn back into a house. So I'm suggesting that in those moments of failure, there's another kind of way to occupy, to empower.
1: Well, one of the things I liked about some of your examples is that you actually almost take us into the realm of mathematical proof. We're not just hoping for better outcomes. And you talk in particular about this paradox in which Playing two losing games at the same time produces potentially a positive outcome, which was a bit of a surprise even to me. And I wonder whether you could talk about the function of this kind of thinking in modelling solutions, even when we're not, as you say, trying to pursue singular solutions. Well,
0: I mean, I'm mean, i trying to talk about it in any way I can, because it might, something for one reader might m- make sense for another reader not. But but one way of getting at this idea of uh, the productivity of problems, the ways in which problems have their own potentials is by looking at this um, kind of counterintuitive game theory called Parando's paradox, mm-hmm. you know which says that if you if you have a if you play a losing game, a game that has a probability of losing, you will lose. But if you alternate between losing games and who knows why it's as if one acts as a kind of ratchet against the other you start Mm. to win almost like if you if you work between two tables why is that i don't know the answer to why why it is i don't think people (laughs) who work on parando's paradox know why that is but and and forgive me if i'm wrong about that um but i think it has you know it, it it almost is is as if the information from one pure system acts as kind of sand or resistance to another, Mm -hmm. you know, like it starts to give you traction uh, within another, Um, another, you know, kind of concrete example, a housing community called Avondale in Cincinnati had, I think it's Cincinnati, um, had a, one of the highest mortality rates, child infant mortality rates in in the country. Mm -hmm. And so it would seem that this housing project that, even concentrated more and more mothers with, who were having high rates of infant mortality. It was just making things worse and worse. But, it, but it, what someone had the idea of simply rewiring those problems. So had the idea of al- allowing some of the older women to be health champions for the younger ones. Some mm-hmm. of the older women who knew, knew about this longer history. And the infant mortality rate starts to go down. There was an asset or a relief from the violence created by a rewiring of the problems. The because mm. there were potentials in a relationship between two women who had had the same problem.
1: Yeah, and that, I mean that takes us to to a place where you acknowledge in the book that a lot of the time we have already either previously practiced a lot of these solutions or we already, as you said. Practice aspects of them on a daily basis, but it's also the the, the example you just brought up of of health outcomes um, using relatively easy in, in interventions. And I think we have examples of things like this happening all over the world. You know, health champions and traveling nurses are, are the kind of thing that make international news, as though you know yet again some charity has reinvented medicine from scratch you You think about this in the context in which you are sceptical of our kind of managerial need for the evidence based trial you 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 don't necessarily want to rely on a single set set of data. So my question here is at at which point we we understand data as data, at which point we start to trust what we see in front of our eyes and i think this is this is a very fundamental question you know how do we deal with positivism and social construction? being at the core of what it is that we have to deal with at a very day. Again, I think the COVID COVID handling worldwide is is an example of the fact that we completely lack the facility to understand the world through both those prisms at the same time. So how do you see this playing out? Like wh- which which part of a brain do we get to exercise at which which moment?
0: It's such an such an important question because I mean, you know, maybe some of the people who are your listeners are part of, you know, an academic world or they're part of a world that can only rely on a currency of quantitative proof. Uh, mm. That's just, that's it. Even if it means that it, the only thing they can do is a more precise measurement of our doom, you know, uh, uh, with regard to uh, <laughs> the uh, environment favorite. or something like that. Uh, so, where is the place for? creative mixtures, which yes, we can measure aspects of, we can take some vital signs of, but, but which are designed as, uh, to try um, certain things, try and try again. Um, and what, what I think is you know, really useful is to recognize that nothing works, nothing works. Uh, no one thing works. Nothing works, and uh, so you're you think, are I think, making. I
1: think this buzz repeating again because that's yes. a profound sorry. message of, of of the book. And sorry, we didn't start with that.
0: Uh, sorry if I said that too forcefully, but uh, but one can only work on something and and then adjust to the moments when you're maneuvered politically or when it stops working. Uh, so. It's a different habit of mind about approaching problems um, Mm -hmm. that is not looking for a silver bullet, a a new technology, but that is looking for a kind of tending to um, a situation. And, you know, I worry sometimes that, you know, because... Culture sort of finds the solution so seductive, especially you know, kind of wrapped yeah. up in TED Talk language, the jaw-dropping mm. da da, you know, kind of you know solution. That I, I hope that I think that sometimes people read the book with that thing in mind, assuming that mm. I am one of those people who's who's speaking in a TED Talk location, and I am not. Um, I am uh, looking at each of these things and looking for what I might do and then swiping them off the table. Uh, hmm. This is not good. This won't work all the time. This is something but tr- just trying to train a sense of of um, how to be Mark Twain on the river.
1: Um. <laughs> well, what what is the answer in practice? And I'm thinking in particular about modes of political engagement. So one of the things that's been on my mind is the left's propensity to favor forms of radical politics, which... I guess to a certain extent tends to favour these kind of singular solutions that you have defined as being problematic. My favorite example here is the figure, the cipher of Kreta Thunberg, who while symbolizes a worth while well, she symbolizes a worthwhile cause, she does also come with this kind of singular doom um, measurement type of anti solutionism to, to a certain extent. So I think my question for you is how one composes one's political outlook within this requirement for subtlety and for complexity and multi-strand thinking.
0: Well, I, I come from the left. It's this is, as is obvious, um, hmm. but uh, I'm trying to strengthen the left, and, and 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 this is really joining so many other people: abolitionists, black feminists feminists physicists all trying to shed a kind of modern enlightenment habit of mind um, mm-hmm. uh, that gets in the way of in its search for the one and only the one and only solution the kind of monotheistic mon- mono ideational thinking um or or uh, uh, oscillating between um mono-ideationalism and Manichaean binaries, Mm. you know, sort of that lock on habit of mind is uh, not productive. Um, And of course it is, um, you know, when it's responsible for all of our follies and hubris for the stupidities of our humanities to date, you know, our... All <laughs> combat and collapse, all apocalypse and burnout. You know, and so you know when someone like Sylvia Winter talks about a reenchantment of the human, um, mm. I'm I'm there, I'm with her, <laughs> I am behind her, uh, in her shadow, to try to think differently and even to see the limits of our activism when we. Think there's only one and only you know solution. Mm. There's only one enemy, uh, because there are no singular enemies. There's you know capitalism, fascism, xenophobia, um, racism, whiteness, sectarian. But I mean all those things all together. Yeah. Then there are no singular solutions either. I mean sometimes as a, as an activist, if one if one does not work on a singular solution mm-hmm. is seen as a betrayal of any of the others. It's, it's, it's again, an old, uh, it's a category mistake that is a hangover of that modern mm-hmm. enlightenment mind. Um, so to not be going for the one and only, you know, political solution is not a betrayal of it. Uh, it's not equivocation. It's actually a st- a broadening, strengthening fiber of political activism to, to mm. see um, chances to reduce violence in many ways. I mean, activism is marching, protesting, uprising, rioting, sabotaging, unionizing, legislating, um, <laughs> uh, all those things and it will rioting and it will looting and it will continue to be all of those things. That power doesn't change without pressure um, but uh I also want to add to that activist repertoire a set of other sneakier things <laughs> that are sometimes undeclared um, you know mm. like you you don't go up to every weed in the field and shoot it with a shotgun. you change something in the soil um and oh. so I think there are chances with some s- spatial apparatus of changing things in the soil that that outwit some political superbugs that are spoiling for that one and only fight from us as activists. Mm. They thrive on it. They crave it. They they exist because of it. So activists also have to know how to starve them of the fight they want.
1: That's a beautiful formulation of your manifesto. Um, I want to go back to a little pairing that you made a moment ago, which is you, you put together physicists and feminists. And as maybe some of our listeners will remember, I trained as a physicist before I came to the humanities and, and to art in particular. So it forever bothers me, even, even though I'm on your side, generally about the requirement for complexity and for interdisciplinarity in, in finding solutions to our problems. And I am forever frustrated by the bad rap that physics, the sciences, and more broadly, positivistic mode of thinking receive in redesigning the world. So I wanted to ask you about the apparatus of the superbug, which you developed in one of your earlier books, which is a way of thinking about why it is that we struggle so much with combining. Sets of approaches.
0: Right. Uh, the, the super bugs are, are, you know, whether it's a figure like, you know, Trump or whether it's uh, of an apparatus like the Free Zone, it's, you know, that mm. m- manages to be so incredibly agile that it. It uh, it creates a kind of Teflon for itself to move through the world, like it's like it's like the bumpiness of shark skin, or creates mm-hmm. enough turbulence to kind of uh, actually let it glide through the water. Um, uh, and it's you know superbugs are these creature people or organizations that. That you know tell so many lies that they do create a kind of slippery Teflon on which mm-hmm. reasonable thinking starts to slip and slide. Uh, it's a little bit like, you know, Robert Muzel's, um I'm uh, paraphrasing. You know that the truth is at a disadvantage. You know, stu- stupidity can put on mm-hmm. all the guises of truth, and so it's it's at a greater a- advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, so the superbugs have that power. They also manipulate um undeclared potentials, this business of seeing potentials and dispositions mm-hmm. and context uh th- they're really good at it um they they and and they can outsmart um the earnest person who believes in truth and declaration you know as as stated every time and I try to give a lot of examples of that in the book where An an activist situation was outsmarted by Hmm. a superbug who was playing the dispositional layers of temperament or some other undeclared potential, or was scrambling ideologies left and right, you know, Hmm. so that and trying to garner loyalties from anybody through mixed up, confused positions that were playing on on temperament or emotion. So, I mean, there's a lot to say about how. A super bug works what i was trying to say a minute ago is you know how do you double cross them um mm-hmm. as an activist um rather than falling into the category mistake of of mistaking part for whole um or saying oh, there's mm-hmm. only one and only one way to do it you know it's physics or it's this or it's that no it's, it's all those things it's it's all those things all together as you as you say it's both and not the one and only you know, Trump, Trump said that the COVID germ was a genius at one point. You know, it was, <laughs> was a word he had only reserved for himself, you know. Yeah. But I think what he, was, what he meant was that he couldn't believe that, um, that, it, well, that he, he was admiring the germ, the mm. virus, because of its changeability. You know, because it, would, it mm. mutates as it needs to, to survive, and he recognized himself. You know, um, so I think our own activist techniques have to be equally sly um, if you want to go
1: up against these guys. So As we come towards the end, I want to ask you maybe a little bit the kind of alliances that we can be making in this project. So I'm interested in the kind of thinkers and practitioners that you hang out with intellectually or maybe even in real life. What's What's the syllabus on which we... We're building this project.
0: Well, I do. I do think there is that r- relay of thought that I was trying to outline in the book between Ryle and Polanyi and Deleuze and Foucault, but then going on to Latour and Jane Bennett mm. and Karen Barad, and then really going on to some of the abolitionist black feminist thinkers today, um, those who are working on community economies like gibson graham and the black feminist thinkers you know from from sylvia winter to Catherine mckittrick to to sadia hartman and 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 so and so many others but that but there is in the in that thinking about mutualism the habit of mind that i was trying Mm. to say is kind of like on the flip side of our modern enlightenment habit of mind that that is that other way of but, you know as sylvia winter would say re-enchanting uh, the human uh, rather than accepting what it has been to be human so far in the last
1: mm. 500 years well you managed to compress and synthesize a lot of these developments a lot of this thinking into what seems like quite a technical and hands-on and almost practical <laughs> practical book you, you you said this is not a manifesto not a manual for We're not knowing how to work in the world. But actually, you get get quite close. It's not not nearly as abstract. So congratulations on that. But I want to ask you about what it is that you're working on now and next. What can we look forward to? Um,
0: I'm working on um, a a project which is looking at alternative forms of land tenure um, Mm -hmm. that are practiced, Uh, different forms of making commons and collectivity, Uh, really practical models that are Mm -hmm. out there that are being used. And again, it's kind of going back to 500 years ago and, you know, what David Graeber and and in the dawn of everything and his um, um, co-author, David Winthrop, would call, uh, you know, a sort of kaleidoscope of different approaches to how how one sees the Earth. Um, So it's looking at a lot of, of these um, alternative landholding organs, but it's it's looking specifically at one story uh, about a community in Georgia that started what's called a community land trust that grew out of the civil rights movement. But because it's set at a moment when there's also a kind of global solidarity, international solidarity between the pan-African civil rights, non-aligned, and tri-continental movements. There's a lot of activists who are traveling all around the world. They're pinging around between sort of hmm. Cuba and Tanzania and Ghana. And and all of those influences came into this one town in, in rural Georgia. Uh, you know, uh, Nairi's Ujamaa, uh, ideas about Ujamaa and collectivity, the Ejido ideas in Mexico, the um, Gromdan movement, uh, so I've I've found a story which allows me to be in one particular place in rural Georgia, but also refer to this international kind of explosion of activism at the in the late sixties and seventies.
1: That's a very exciting story because in this book in medium design, some of the accounts of land management models are probably one of the most heartening, and they they're also. Seem to have the highest success rates so as problem-solving drives have gone. So I really look forward to, to seeing what comes out of this work. Keller, thank you so much.
0: Well, wow, thank you, thank you.
1: Medium Design: Knowing How to Work on the World by Keller Easterling is published by Verso. I'm Pierre Delancin, and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thank you for listening, and join us next time.